Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. My name is Joseph Stewart, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Maxwell Institute at BYU. Today, our guest is Jamil W. Drake, and he wrote a marvelous book called To Know the Soul of a People, Religion, Race, and the Making of Southern Folk from Oxford University Press. To Know the Soul of a People is a history of religion and race in the agricultural South before the civil rights era. Professor Drake chronicles a cadre of social scientists who studied the living conditions of Black rural communities, revealing the abject poverty of the Jim Crow South. These university-affiliated social scientists documented shotgun houses, unsanitary privies and contaminated water, scaly hands, enlarged stomachs, and malnourished bodies. However, they also turned their attention to the spiritual possessions, chanted sermons, ecstatic singing, conjuration, dreams, visions, fortune-telling, taboos, and other religious cultures of these communities. These scholars aim to illuminate the impoverished conditions of their subjects for philanthropic and governmental organizations, as well as the broader American public. In the first half of the 20th century, especially during the Great Depression, religion was integral to their efforts to chart the long economic depression across the South. Welcome, Jamil Drake, to New Books in African American Studies. Thank you for having me. Now, it is my pleasure and all of our pleasures. And the first thing that I was struck by when I was reading your book was how you use the term folk. Could you please define it for us in the way that you're using it in To Know the Soul of a People? Well, certainly. I mean, that's a great question. You know, well, folk is a familiar category in, you know, African-American religion and African-American culture. The way I'm using the term is that it basically classifies and identifies a population or a demographic considered outside of modern society. It also like classifies a people on the basis of their perceived outdated or obsolete primal or primitive cultures and behaviors. So my book basically shows that by the 1930s, Blacks in the agricultural South were in the words of uh, Robert Redford, cultural historian, America's principal folk. That's very helpful. And I think that it's really interesting the way that you use this to define folk religion. So how are these scholars, these philanthropic folks, how are they working to describe this Black agricultural religion as folk or folksy? What do they gain from that? Black sociologist Charles Johnson remarks in 1934, America's peasant class. Yeah. So on one level, you know, folk is a cultural concept. It's a cultural category. And thus, you know, folk classifies and defines, like I said in the last question, Black rural Southerners on the basis of their culture and behaviors. So early 20th century social scientists actually considered religion to be one important aspect of a people's culture, such as their vernacular, their oral cultures, as well as their beliefs and practices, right? So in some ways, conjure, or we can think about, you know, the perfectionism in holiness and Black Pentecostalism, right? To in some ways be classified as folk. And it's classified as folk because it shows that in some ways, these people, because of their religious beliefs, are underdeveloped, they're a deficient population, inhabiting the sort of isolated, poor rural South, and they're in need of modern reform. So what I try to show is that in some ways, folk 
I mean, at least baked in the category of folk are certain ideas about race and class that my book tries to uncover. Yeah, certainly. And I think that there's also a relationship to modernity in some ways, too. The idea that these Black folk can be redeemed in some way. They can be, quote unquote, brought up the level that society or white mainland Protestantism expects from them. So what relationship did folk religion have to modernity, at least in the eyes of these social scientists that you're studying? That's a great question. And I think these social scientists in some ways understood folk as a modern category. I mean, you know, you see this human and scientific propensity to categorize and classify people and things. So folk, in some ways, it's a very modern concept. As a modern concept, it basically, as I said, it classifies and identifies certain religious beliefs and practices of rural Black Southerners as outside of what is considered modern or what is considered mainstream America, that which is sort of scientific, industrial, commercial, advanced society, and that these people have a kind of obsolete, isolated, underdeveloped, deficient religious cultures that in some ways is really not in line with advanced modern industrial society. Thank you for that answer. I think it's important to remember, as you say, that these white social scientists have absolutely bought into the idea of racial hierarchy and they're applying their disciplines in folklore studies and anthropology and sociology to reinforce ideas about racial hierarchy. But the social scientist liberalism is leading them to not only think about black folk in a certain way, but black southern folk in a particular way. How does regionalism come into your analysis? So these social scientists at Chapel Hill basically are calling for a kind of modernization of the South. But in order to modernize the South, meaning integrating the regional South with the broader national economy and national culture, you first have to scientifically and thoroughly study the South and study its typography. You have to study its geography. You have to study its folkways. You have to study its institutions. You have to study its people. You have to know the one but many South in order to reform and change it. As it relates to the racial front, these white Southern liberals are championing, right, racial cooperation. In other words, they're working with Black social scientists, Black civil groups, such as those social scientists at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. And in some ways, they're basically championing racial progress. In other words, Blacks having access to better schools, to better jobs, to better health care, etc. At the same time, they're gradualists. In other words, they champion racial Black progress but it's still within the confines of Jim and Jane Crow because they do not believe white people are ready for the dismantling of Jim Crow. So they're trying to call for Black progress within the constraints of Jim Crow governance, right? And so what this means is that they're attacking the Negro problem, but they're integrating it within the broader sort of Southern regional problem. In other words, they're not trying to just deal with the Negro problem on its own terms. 
they're basically trying to deal with the problem in sort of a broader attempt to rehabilitate and to modernize the Southern economy. And so they're prioritizing the Southern economy and they're saying, if we call for, or if we champion, if we work towards Black progress, it will only help the Southern economy. It will only help modernize the Southern economy. But at the same time, they're doing it within the constraints of Jim and Jane Crow, and they're against agitation, and they're against protest. Yeah, this is something that I think that you do particularly well in the book is show that, yes, they're liberal, and yes, they want change, but they want the power structure to remain the same. They absolutely want things to remain the way they are. They just want conditions to be improved. A a kinder, gentler Jim and Jane Crow, maybe, is another way of thinking about it. Thank you, Professor Drake. So going from the big picture of the book to thinking about an individual chapter, how did the concept of folk grow out of concerns about Black governability and labor concerns during Reconstruction and the early Jim Crow era? Yes, no, thank you for that question. And in some ways, what I'm trying to do in this book is to show how folk in the history of the social sciences actually grew out of a national conversation that was called the Negro problem after Reconstruction. And in some ways, you get social scientists who are using the folk because in some ways they're trying to answer why did Reconstruction fail? Now, many social scientists such as W.E.B. Du Bois and other Black social scientists and progressive reformers, they in some ways attribute the failures of Black Reconstruction to white supremacy. But others like Howard Odom and other mainly white natural and social scientists, they are actually attributing the problem to certain kind of behavioral deficits are in some ways inferior racial traits. So Howard Odom, in 1909, he's using folk and he's studying the kind of folk religious spirituals to in some ways expose the kind of inferior racial mind that he actually calls the folk mind that is actually contributing to the laziness, the vagrancy, the criminality of Black people, and in particular, their bad religion that doesn't have any moral import. So in some ways, what Odom is saying is that it's because of their folk mind, as demonstrated by their folk spirituals, that they are ruining the Southern economy because they're wandering, they're not wanting to work. So he suggests that the ways in which we reform them is to moralize their religion that is actually more in line with creating better work habits are what Max Weber called the Protestant work ethic. I was also struck by the idea of thinking about folkness and ideas about disease and health, especially in the early 20th century. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, this is one of my favorite chapters, and it's actually the basis of my next project that grew out of particularly chapter three. We can't think about folk without understanding the standardization of medicine and health in American society, or at least efforts towards standard or modernizing health and medicine in American society. So basically what these social scientists are saying as they're trying to modernize uh, rural Blacks 
by getting them to understand and trust modern medicine, they also understand and they have to know for the sake of erasing their folk beliefs that are developing again outside of modern medicine. So in some ways, many of these social scientists, they're in some ways seeing how their quote unquote folk beliefs of folk practices, folk religions have nothing to do or do not aid Black people in understanding communicable diseases such as syphilis and modern ways to prevent it. And I think I should say that my understanding of modern in this book is a regulatory idea. In other words, it shows how baked in our notions of what is modern is basically these ideas about good conduct, good behavior, good religion, good sex, good work habits, so forth and so forth, that is really a part of an understanding of liberal democracy that is sort of animating the ways in which these social scientists are understanding religion and using the category of folk religion to reform and modernize these rural Blacks inhabiting the agricultural Jim Crow South. Yeah. And again, one of the brilliant things is just, again, this liberal idea that things can be changed, things can be made better while not looking to attack the system in general. And one of the ways that you think about this is thinking about cultural lag. So first, could you define cultural lag for us? And how did white reformers seek to overturn it during the Great Depression? The cultural lag, it's a familiar concept in century social science movement in some ways, or the sociology movement, I should say. It's a familiar term in 20th century sociology, right? particularly coming out of the Chicago school, right? And in some ways, what I do in the book is that the cultural lag is operating the same way as these social scientists are using folk. Basically, that you have an obsolete, stagnant culture that's developing outside of modern change or modern industrial progress, right? And so an evidence of the ways in which folk and cultural lag, the ways they're being used in similar ways, right? We see that in the Gunnar Myrdal Carnegie study of the Negro problem, right? Where you have a Swedish economist, Gunnar Myrdal, who's actually, you know, working with many social scientists. He's recruiting and he's paying them to help him understand the Negro problem as their ring report like Alison Davis, an African-American social anthropologist who's actually using cultural lag to basically show the ways in which regional poverty coupled with Jim Crow is not only stunting the sort of social and economic growth or progress, but it's also stunting the mental and cultural growth of rural Blacks. I should say rural and lower class Blacks in places like Mississippi, as well as Louisiana. Thank you so much for that answer. Again, there's so much in this book, which is called To Know the Soul of a People, Religion, Race, and the Making of Southern Folk from Oxford University Press. And in your final chapter, you discuss what you call the irony of romanticism involved in Alan Lomax's and others' efforts to preserve folk songs. What do you mean by an ironic romanticism? That's a good question. And so... So this book, I'm very clear, is not necessarily, you know, saying that 
folk is solely defined in one way. I'm very clear that I'm using folk as it's being used and deployed by liberal social scientists, right? But at the same time, I've written elsewhere, and as I stated in the introduction, there are many ways that in some ways folk is actually being used, right? I could have easily included a chapter that I did in my dissertation on Zora Neale Hurston, right? I could have easily talked about the popular front, which I do a little bit with Lomax. I could have easily talked about Black literary modernism if we think about Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray, which I've written about in the past, right? So I'm very clear in the ways in which I'm using it. But this last chapter where I'm talking about Alan Lomax is sort of oddly situated within the whole book, right? What do I mean by that? In some ways, Alan Lomax, unlike these racial liberals, Alan Lomax is using folk not to necessarily understand a deficient population, but he's actually using it to show a very vibrant population with these very vital and creative religious practices, especially singing. And we do know Alan Lomax, the famed 20th century American folklorist, also has certain kind of leftist commitments where he's in some ways making a connection between these religious spiritual practices and a kind of progressive leftist sort of politics because he was a part of, in some ways, the popular front. What do I mean by that? In some ways, he's able to draw the connection where he's recording folk spirituals or folk songs from Black people who are singing in rural Mississippi, and he's able to make the connection that when they sing about Daniels and the Lions Den, they're actually also talking about the absentee white landowner that's exploiting them, right? But in some ways, Alan Lomax gets trapped, even as he's romanticizing, right? Romanticizing Black folk culture, Black religious expression, he still falls into the very modern problem that these racial liberals fell into. In other words, he also thinks that Black folk culture, Black folk religion, Black folk religious songs actually develop outside of industrialization, outside of commercialism, outside of commodification. So therefore, when he goes to Mississippi, he is really upset that rural Mississippians are listening to Duke Ellington, that they're singing the gospel blues, because he thinks they are in some ways portraying, are they're in some ways moving away from their authentic, pure folk religious sounds. And in some ways, he just misses the fact that he is very much the representative of the very modernization that he claims to be against. He's turning these folk songs into books. He's turning these folk songs or archiving them in the Library of Congress. He forgets that these people, these quote unquote Black folk people that he's recording, they're very much a part of mainstream America. This is why you get many of them asking for money after they record the song or can they be released from jail or using their folk song to talk directly to FDR that I'm not getting a new deal. I'm getting the raw deal. So these people are very much modern, even as he in some ways wants to preserve an isolated, pure, folk, authentic sound. 
that is really not realistic. And I wrote this sort of chapter because I think it also includes the familiar ways in which the contemporary field uses folk in African-American religion to romanticize a people. I just tried to show the historical and the political context by which this romanticization occurs. And it actually perpetuates what Catherine Lofton says, the kind of perpetual primitive of a people outside of modernization. Zohar replicates this, reifies this, but it's really not the case. Thank you. I really love the chapter and love it even more with your explanation there. And a few questions that I have at the end is, first, it seems that not only are you paying attention to race, but also to class. And that's something that uh, scholars of African-American studies and African-American religious studies don't always do. And I'm wondering what you think might be missed if scholars neglect class when they're studying race. When we neglect class, we forget about the ways in which religion and culture are in some ways a part of the broader sort of political economy. But in some ways, this idea that folk or folk religion includes certain ideas about race and class, it actually shows that we can't study class without studying race, right? And in some ways, what I'm saying is that if we do not take into account class, we fall into the sort of pitfalls of where we fell into with the last presidential election, where we in some ways render race or we render whiteness invisible when we're thinking about the working class or when we're thinking about working class religion and working class culture. So in other words, we have to study race and class together, then we can't neglect the ways in which they're actually entangled. And when we study folk, we see the ways in which they're entangled. We can't study one without the other. So I think that's brilliant. And one of the things that I think that you do particularly well in the book is that you're reading discursively. You're reading against the grain and thinking about how these scholars and these philanthropists and government officials, how they're interacting with Black Southern folk. And you're seeing the broader discourse rather than just the actual quotes or the actual words that are given and wondering how you approached reading these sources where the race and class and power differences between the interviewee and interviewer or observer and observee are so stark. What might you recommend for those who are engaging in such a project? I thank you for that. So this is an intellectual history and I'm definitely using discourse analysis. In other words, I'm asking how did folk religion or black folk religion become an idea? Generally, when we think about and we just pay attention to black people study folk religion, it not only entails actually Black people doing religion, but it also entails broader kind of governmental, bureaucratic, commercial networks that were also doing something that actually gave rise to our idea of folk religion. So we're studying networks. We're studying institutions. And so when we study Black religion, we have to ask ourselves, how did that idea come about? And so folk was just one way for me to think about the various sort of institutions and the various networks that also had a hand, along with Black people practicing and doing religion in this idea of folk. And with that being said, sorry, some of the power relations that also arise when we study folk. So the fact that Alan Lomax is working for the government, 
the fact that the social scientists are working for the WPA or they have a particular kind of scientific legitimacy to kind of label and categorize and know these Black people and their religious practices because it's validated under the kind of jurisdiction or validated by science. That's a kind of power relationship where they get to name and categorize people and their religious practices. That is also a part of this familiar term, Black folk and Black folk religion that this book seeks to uncover. Thank you so much for that. Now, one final question to get you out on, and it sounds like you already have a pretty good idea that you mentioned earlier, but what's the next book project that you are going to be engaging on? Very good question. And I'm just so excited to get to it. And it comes out of uh, the chapter three, where I will be continuing this because I'm trying to give a history of the present, meaning this situation with COVID, right? Where state governments were actually turning to Black religious institutions, particularly Black churches, to disseminate knowledge and vaccines as it relates to COVID, right? And I'm trying to give a history of the present. And so what I'm doing is looking at the relationship between Black religion and modern health. And what I'm thinking about is thinking about the ways in which religious leaders, the ways in which religious institutions are part of the very modern project of Black folks by trying to medicalize them. So this is my next project. I have a lot to say, have some you know, essays that are under review now, but I'm just looking forward to getting into the project around you know, Black religion and public health in the 30s and 40s, particularly as it relates to Black religion tackling and addressing issues around maternal and infant mortality, tuberculosis, and syphilis. It's a way to account for the history of the present, where modern health was also a part of Black religion that I'm seeking to address. Well, thank you very much, Professor Jamil Drake of Yale University. The name of the book is To Know the Soul of a People, Religion and Race in the Making of Southern Folk. And thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much.